0: We're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome, everyone, to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm your host, Carlos Noche, and I'm joined by my co-host, Lisa Schneer. Say hi, Lisa. Hi, folks. Today, we're going to talk about the role of the chief customer officer and their impact on the industry. Now, we see more and more companies talk about earning and maintaining customer relationships based on value, but only a few are doing this consistently with measurable success.
1: And to help us out with that topic today, we have Michael Hubbard, Senior Vice President of Customer Success Services and Support at Smartsheet which seems to have figured out exactly how to maximize the lifetime value of your customers. We both have been looking forward to this conversation. And Michael, thank you so much for taking the time today and welcome to the show.
2: Thanks a lot, Carlos and Lisa.
1: Okay, Michael, before we jump into the topic of the day, we like to start with a question to help our audience get to know you a little better. What is something you're passionate about, which people who only know you through business might be surprised to learn?
2: Sure. I'd say there's a few things, but the example I'll give today is music right? So mm. I actively play in a rock and roll band. I'm the drummer and part-time singer. We're a pretty heavy band doing Metallica, Ozzy Osbourne, Guns N' Roses, a little Ghost, right? A little Van Halen. So we let our hair down that way virtually. And uh, our next show is at the Cubby Bear in Wrigleyville. I'm based out of Chicago on uh, the 28th of uh, July. So come on out.
0: Man, I didn't know that. That's a good one. For the folks in our audience, On a personal side, I've known Michael for over 10 years. God, it's hard to believe it's been so long. I've gotten to meet Michael through some of his prior roles, and he's been a client as well. So thank you so much, Michael, for joining us. All right. Tell us a little bit about Smartsheet. How'd you get there? How did your career arrive at this point?
2: Sure. So I've been in Smartsheet for about two years. So the first thing I'd say, anyone who's thinking about transitioning as we emerge from the pandemic, you can totally transition to a new company. In this virtual world, I did it at the height of COVID, and it's been a great ride. Two years ago, I joined SmartSheet because it was an opportunity to really do the full post sales experience right, own the PL for services. We're about a hundred million dollar services business. Own the customer success organization, including renewals. So we'll we'll end the year hopefully around eight hundred million dollars of renewing ARR, and then drive the support organization, which was a newer part of, of my remit. I'd been around support after 20 years in on-prem and on-prem and cloud software companies, but never led support. So really excited to do that. And then we created a few orgs along the way. My background before that was mostly enterprise software companies. So places like ServiceNow, places like VMware, places like Oracle, uh, many of those where I got to know Carlos and the visualized folks. And my jam is kind of a couple hundred million in revenue to a couple billion in revenue. That's The phase I really enjoy where you're still maniacally customer focused, but you're starting to build the muscles and maturity of a big software company and you can do it right. Excellent.
0: All right. So let's start uh, understanding your view on this role of this chief customer
2: officer. Sure. So, chief customer officer is sort of a a little bit of a new animal in the zoo, right, of software. And so, as as we sort of created the success organization to be a complement to sales, and sometimes it's the account management function, sometimes it's almost a post sales feature discovery and enablement function. It is getting wrapped into sort of fulfilling all the brand promises in terms of experience that a customer has from the day they sign on the line that is dotted to initiating that service and onboarding them through success to getting them excited about fitting it into a use case through maybe higher low touch services and implementation to then getting through the first part of a relationship, which is when something goes wrong you know, if you get through that, you have a real relationship, which is often the support side of things and getting things back on track. And then what I brought to that role here at Smartsheet, which is uh, things I've learned at places like ServiceNow and, and VMware before that, is making sure it's all wrapped up in a prescriptive journey for how customers maximize their value by injecting risk and cost, which you do when you put a new software platform into your operating environment.
0: Excellent. I mean, through the years ago, yeah, we saw like the The services team getting a customer up and running, then handing it over to someone in support. Then this new role of customer success kind of came around and everything always seems siloed. So it sounds like all that, plus kind of being an advocate, I think, is becoming part of this customer success officer role. Did I get that right?
2: That's exactly right. So it's unfortunate if a customer has to be the workflow and the navigator between what's in success versus what's in support versus what's in services, right? That should be seamless. And so when you put it together into a common org under a common leader, you start to create engagement methodologies that make it seamless so that really everyone in that org is trying to do two things, make sure customers are super, super successful on their attempts to achieve value. And then we're advocating for any change we should be making internally in products or processes to show up the way our brand promises we will.
0: Love it. All right. So prior to the podcast, we had discussed a little bit about the importance about understanding customers lifetime value. Can you share with us why lifetime value of the customer seems to be so important and basically kind of versus the cost of acquisition? Why is that so important in a SaaS model?
2: Right. So we're not going to get into the dry technical unpacking of what LTV to CAC as a calculation means, but it's exactly (laughs) what you're poking (laughs) on at there, Carlos.
0: We just lost part of our audience that had pocket protectors and was ready to
2: go. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but if, if we talk about LTV to CAC in normal language, what we're talking about is a secular shift to renewals-based business and annual reoccurring revenue or even monthly reoccurring revenue. And so if you say versus the past where maybe people signed up and they bought an asset that they owned and they bought services for three or six years tied to it, you sort of knew that all the cost you incurred to make that prospect a customer, you had three or six years of benefits coming out of it. Now, that cost, you may still have three or six years of benefit, but only based upon how you treat them, because they may leave you one month in in a monthly plan or one year in in an annual plan. And so, therefore, the fuse, the the period you have to get it right, is so much shorter, which means that all of these post-sales experiences and teams, it's super important. The macroeconomic environment makes it even harsher. In general, I think right now, if I just look at my own business and, and the ways I'm spending, going to spend money the rest of this year, I'm going to spend more money with the people I already have in terms of vendors and suppliers than I am to try some new flyer on a new idea with a new vendor. right? And so if you're out there as a sales professional and you're thinking about your prospect accounts versus your existing accounts, I think there's huge opportunity for us to go expand our existing accounts just because of all the new sort of Ways that procurement and financial teams and customers are putting uh, any spend under scrutiny, that's going to be easier with the people that have already earned goodwill and already proved themselves in your vendor community. And so I think expansion versus landing new accounts is going to be a great growth lever. And that's what uh, customer organizations do. That's what customer chief customer officer organizations do.
1: That's what we've been hearing more and more as well, Michael, is that that expansion opportunity is a top focus for a lot of our clients. And it seems like now more than ever, mapping that customer journey is important. What does that look like as a maturity of a customer, the growth of a customer? So what have you seen as best practices? Like, shouldn't this really start back in our sales and marketing motions?
2: Yeah, so I think most great companies that are disrupting or improving a market start by really listening to and being led by the invitation to their customers as to the the right way to find market fit, the right way to have differentiated value, like the very customer led. But once you're a a few years, a few million dollars, a few thousand customers into that journey, especially in the SaaS environment where you're, you're running the customer's environment, you are operationally seeing and managing the entire journey. It's incumbent upon you to start to mine those insights and complement the anecdotal data you're getting from customers about what they want, what they like, their hopes and dreams, their their challenges, with what the data actually says in terms of at scale, that this is the way that people go from initial states of value, maturity, intensity of usage, scale of usage, and the outcomes they're pursuing early in their journey to the sort of nirvana later states of their journey. And to start to prescribe the breakpoints at which some customers stall out and they never really get past the initial innings of maturity while other customers push through it. And when you start to map those journeys, you'll find that there are heuristic leaps. There are solutions that you can give your customers at scale so they get maximum value. They get to maturity faster. They achieve scale in a more great way through the prescription of what everyone else has already figured out. And let's be honest, most customers, especially in a semi-recessionary environment, they want to do what they know everybody else has proven works. And that's what mapping a customer journey does, right? What does everybody else like me use your products for? How does everybody else like me get the most value from your products? How often do sellers have you heard that? And how many times do you make up the answer, right? Like what we should be doing is mining the data and insights and giving you the answer. And you'll initially get comments that like, you can't get that. Those answers from the data we have can't easily, but you can get the answers, right? It just takes some effort.
1: Right. No, that's very true. <laughs> Something that luckily we are also hearing more of is people trying to truly understand what it's like to be in their customer's shoes All the way from like we work with SDR teams, prospecting teams, all the way through to that CSM organization that's really helping to grow, expand, nurture those relationships. And hearing companies talk about having their SDRs empowered to truly understand their customers' perspective, I think is a shift that I definitely didn't see when I started out over a decade ago. There was very little of that type of commitment to understanding that perspective. So I think we're headed in the right direction for sure.
2: That's right. And, and when we do that work post-sales, the so back to your sort of initial framing of should this come from marketing and sales, it informs marketing and sales. So as we do this work in the context of what customers actually experience, we bring it closed loop back to inform the brand promise, change the targeting of where we'll play and why we will win in terms of, of where we market, and then the SDR and new business rep sort of penetration areas.
1: I love that because it's actually advice that I give clients sometimes is like, we'll talk about, oh, like, what's the ICP? Do you understand how to speak to these customers? What's the messaging supposed to look like? How do you make it compelling? And I'll literally say, don't you have a CSM team? (laughs) Talk to them. They're talking to your customers every day, all day. They know exactly what is compelling to them about working with us as a company. They know exactly the value realized by them by working with us as a company. So I love to hear you say that. So, Michael, with today's competitive landscape and as you had prefaced or or mentioned the economic times that we're facing, is it so much more than just positioning product features and functions? Is it more than understanding at that level what the value is? Can you provide your views on that?
2: Yeah, Absolutely. In, In any environment, including this one it always comes down to opportunity costs, right? You're going to get to a buyer who has less budget than they have great ideas presented to them. And they're going to have to triage and prioritize top 10 spend items out of 50 that have an ROI, but which are the top 10 with either the best ROI or the most strategic impact. And so it is, it's more important than ever to, to have a really clear reason why you're going to be in the top 10 list. Or in this environment, maybe the top three, right? The top three projects are going to get approved. And there's two parts of that discussion. One is it's clearly it's the financial side and you've got people involved in that decision process that are just looking at things like internal rate of return, ROI, net present value, hurdle rate, et cetera. But then you've got another group of people in that same meeting that maybe aren't on the procurement and finance side, but own the business results that are saying, but I'm trying to make this shift. If I make this shift, I will drive growth or I will improve return or I will hit the outcomes. And so you have to have sort of the heart and the mind. And so the mind side might be tied to, yeah, those hard financial measures in the business case, but then you have to provide the context of why it's worth, why do anything at all. And that has to be that you have to have established what major business objective you're contributing to, right? So is it a top line? Is it a bottom line? Is it risk? Is it about customer experience? Is it about rep productivity? Is it about making your brand promise real in the market? And so if you do those two things... And the journey can do that. If you're building a good prescriptive customer journey, it only says how you get from low maturity to high maturity in a prescriptive, successful way that people have already proven. But it puts it in the context of most people start with us to save money. Then they progress because they realize if they share these same capabilities that are saving them money internally with how they interact with their customers externally, it helps them make money, right? And so if you create a good journey, it will prescribe not only the way you you. Consume features in your platform or your product from early to late states of maturity and adoption, but it'll also show how the context of why a company is putting you into that new process, exposing you to those new users, how that changes over time, too, often from cost-based to revenue-based to risk-based. And that is often tied to bigger conversations around a shift that exists at the boardroom level of, we're trying to to reduce friction on how we do business with customers, and that's going to unlock growth. as an example.
0: Well said. Michael, I know you, you're a great networker and you have a great group of friends. I can't tell you... I'm bringing that up because I can't tell you how many 50 to 100 million, sometimes even more than that, size companies we deal with that are... We catch them and they're just they're trying to transition from being enamored with their products or their platform to really trying to be more of a value-based kind of selling motion. And you talked earlier about this focus on business outcomes. How important is it and, and how do you help companies that are, didn't catch on to that early enough and are trying to make that transition? Any advice there?
2: Yeah. So if you're fortunate, you're in the situation I've seen before, which is you've created enough goodwill with some of your best customers that they're inviting you into the boss's boss's room to, for, a, for basically a thank you meeting. right? And they're saying, hey, Carlos, we really love what you guys have done from us. I hear only positive things from the team. And then you start to launch into all the things you want to do next. And they start saying, well, frankly, we're kind of done. Like you did you, good job. You delivered what you said you would, which most people don't. And so that's why I wanted to meet you. But, but we're kind of done. And so if you haven't set that larger business context, you end up in a prison of success, right, where they've sort of put you into a box as to what you're, used, what you're good for and the types of problems you solve based upon just the initial deal. And you have to break out of that prison of success. And you do that by reframing essentially into a larger game. That what I did at the project level to take out cost, if we did it at scale, it would show up on your income statement or it would show up on your balance sheet, right? Depending what type of process we're improving, what type of cost we're taking out. And then you have to have some really tangible examples that if you know enough about the customer, sure, you're tying it to their initiatives. But if you don't know enough about the customer, you should create a journey that says This journey is propelled by these major industry drivers, right? So for instance, maybe it's this thing called distributed work and work from home and and the new digital workplace. And you know, every single customer is going to be struggling with that. So if your solution is a part of that, you don't want to just say I'm a video conferencing solution. You want to say that this is part of a larger strategy that all of our customers are considering, which is the future of the digital workplace. And then you're getting yourself into a different frame of mind. Same thing for us at at Smartsheet. It's not that we're just a better way to do project management and work intake. It's that we're defining, we're changing the way people work so that anyone anywhere can change the way they work in a low-code, no-code way, and that you can see that change at scale so that you can tell what a 1,000 of your employees are doing and all that effort they're putting in. Is it going to help you hit your major business objectives or not? So it's super important to change the frame so that you're, it's still credible, it's still threaded back to the features and functions that you actually employ, but it's in the context of something that they're talking about before you come in the room because it's top of mind.
0: Love that. We talk about value selling, we talk about their business objectives and business issues, and that's exactly what you're talking about, these higher level business goals and how we can help the client achieve those goals versus just fixing this small little problem or this even even bigger little problem over here because you start adding those little rocks together, they have a measurable impact. And I love the way you put that. I will tell you that sometimes in talking to customer success teams, for example, the first problem I kind of get run into is like the light bulb goes off because this is good. And I just haven't been asking about that sort of stuff. I've been trapped in these, more of these technical features and getting them working versus understanding the customer, their journey, and what they're trying to do as a business. And it's kind of requires them to kind of pull back a little bit and get the bigger picture. And the other part of it, I also feel like they get trapped in talking to lower technical folks. I'm not trying to just say anything bad about lower technical folks. I don't need a whole bunch of email on it. They're important too. But if someone is responsible for that aspect of the business, it's unfair to ask them, Hey, what are those bigger business objectives that you're trying to do? They're not living that every day. You know, Any advice you have to customer success on how do they use maybe even the greater team to try to get that perspective?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the basics I remember from the first time I sat in a value selling class with you guys was you cannot you're not actually selling if you're talking to someone who can't buy. Yeah, right. And so it's sort of the same thing. Like if you're in customer success, your job is to delight users and unlock understanding of features in the context of use cases that drive to the retention and expansion of that customer. And so if you're only doing half of that sentence because you're only talking to the people that that basically are going to fill out the CSAT and the NPS score on how much they like your product, you're not talking to the people who are going to decide whether to broaden their usage of the product and or even keep you as a tool in the tool set. You're not doing the whole job. You're not doing the full version of customer success if you're only speaking to users. Because the leading indicator is, yes, get people in the app, get the usage up, and and make sure that they're happy in their usage. But the lagging indicator that ultimately pays your bills and my bills is when they expand or they renew. And so that's where, I mean, if you look at, if we're a publicly traded company and smart I mean, the two years that that I've been on this journey, you we know, went from the, a net dollar retention rate in the 120s to now we're up to 133. We went from a churn rate of double digit churn rate to now you know low single digit churn rate. And so, and it is all about making sure we're spending a balanced amount of time between the users and the decision makers and buyers between the delighting them and solving the problem that they're currently focused on to also talking about planning where they could use us in problems that are on the horizon and being as comfortable with explaining how our products solve problems as we are uncovering what problems are most important to solve and, and the way we would measure value by solving.
0: Now, do you, at Smartsheet, do you divide that up into across multiple roles? In other words, I have a customer success rep that's working with you, but I may also have an executive assigned to some key accounts. Any advice there?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have a very long tail business, meaning like we don't have an 80-20 business where 20% of our customers that create 80% of our revenue. We're a long tail, right? So we have to make our $3,000 a year customers successful because we have so many of them. And then of course, we have our $4 million a year customers that we also want to be wildly successful. But the coverage strategy and the segmentation strategy and the executive involvement strategy is very different across the $3,000 versus the $4 million customer. And so you got to have a tech touch motion as you go into those lower ARR approaches. But some of those tech touch motions are driven by a specialist who really, really knows an area in depth that your general CSM uh, does not. Just like as you go up market to those larger, more strategic segments with larger ARR. Yeah, you do start to put together a village of folks that yeah, CSM runs the whole relationship. You have a product specialist who's coming in to address a particularly high value, but maybe complicated feature set to make sure it maps with the use case. Maybe you have a value specialist, right? Someone who is coming in and asking some questions about usage in the context of impact and starting to put a financial proxy in place for what it would mean and providing benchmarking data for, for costs and benefits that your audience doesn't have in terms of What's it worth to save an hour a week for a project manager in our world? And then, yes, executive sponsorship, very, very important. I mean, that the higher you go in your own organization, the more comfortable they're going to be uh, having business outcome and business issue and business context conversations as opposed to only the feature function conversations.
0: You know, you and Lisa mentioned earlier a little bit about the economic climate. And let's face it, more and more, Every day we hear about a new inflation report or something else. And it isn't just a US problem, it's a global problem. So, in thinking about that, right, we've all been, if we're old enough, we've been through some ups and we've been through some downs in the economy. Any advice on how an organization could better leverage the chief customer officer and their team to really try to survive and excel during these economic times?
2: Yeah. So, one of them we touched on earlier, which is, I think it's a time to get close or stay close to the customers you have because people are going to be looking to do more with the folks that have already delivered for them versus trying new relationships, right? So that CS team and that renewals business is going to become super, super important as it's, I think, going to be the source of a lot of growth. The second is I think it's always very welcome when someone comes to you unsolicited and says. I see this macro trend and I wonder how it's impacting you and what is it we could be doing to help. And if you're prepared with, instead of just reacting to their thing saying, yeah, we'd love a price discount or we'd love something for free, if you were instead to also come in and say, because we've looked at the way you're using the product and we see a little bit of a difference between all the things you're entitled to be doing with the product Versus the way you're using it. And it could be intensity of usage. It could be the features that you've turned on. It could just be that certain best practices that unlock value, your team doesn't seem to be deploying in what we can see of the usage profile and offer to invest in working with some of the process owners or the leadership to say, let's really maximize the value that is being left on the table, that's leaking out of this product because shame on us together. We've not maximized and optimized what you can get out of what you already own. And if you go through that process without trying to get them to sign up for more premium features or more users or more bells and whistles, you're going to come across invitations to learn about new bells and whistles, right? It's going to naturally happen along the way.
1: I love that. I love that. So we talked a little bit about LTV and CAC, not to scare more people off, but what are some other things, like And you were just saying about well i guess it'd be maybe nps scores of what other things should ccos be looking at measuring to understand the impact of to the overall business
2: yeah so i think it's really important to first have a balance between leading indicators and lagging indicators right so especially when we're talking about the post sales world we're sort of the the end of all these great things that brand marketing did, that solution marketing did, that product marketing did, that then sales executed, and that product continued to improve. And then, okay, we got a customer to sign up, the rest of the journey continues. But so much of it has been framed. So within that, we have to very quickly uh, have some leading indicators in our part of the journey. The lagging indicators are well understood, right? They're in not the financial statements of your publicly traded company, right? there. They may be GAP or non GAP standard, but they're. They're very standard. And it's things like net dollar retention rate. Um, It's things like churn rate, which is how many dollars you lose of the total dollars you're renewing. They are things like NPS, which is how do I feel on a scale of one to 10 of my likelihood to recommend to a friend or colleague doing business with you. And you get those outcomes of losses, uh, retention rate, and NPS, and it's too late actually to fix them. So what are the leading indicators, right? They're going to be different for different businesses, right? But in most businesses, it starts with getting from selling a bunch of something to actual people who have agreed to create their logon credentials to, and access to that system to use that thing. So very basic thought of like, we've sold them capacity. How are we doing on allocating that capacity to someone who's trying to do something right? real basic, right? The step after that, now that I know who as a person is, it has access to this amazing asset we've sold them and provisioned them. How often are they trying to use it, right? And then the third is on as many interactions as possible. It could be in the product. It could be a survey afterwards. It could be an invitation to a webinar, a community conversation. Just really that interaction-based CSAT feedback that says, how are they feeling about things, right? And then there's so much of this in a digital project you can do in the app. But if you're not in a purely digital project product, you can do it through your marketing campaigns and through surveys and things like that as well.
1: Right. That's great. And clearly, Smartsheet is a top leading company in this kind of thing. However, we're curious, do you have any other examples of organizations you admire for their customer service, their customer offerings, their customer first, customer-centric attitude? How did they get it right? And why do you think that?
2: Yeah, there are so many. And there's so many also that it's not a constant state, right? Like if Things were constant in life and entropy didn't exist. It'd be easy, right? Carlos would never get on a scale again because he just worked <laughs> out and ate right for that one month and everything was set up, right?
0: Sure. You had to bring my weight into this.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I've, known you I've known you 10 years. So hey, there's so many great companies out there that are, that are getting this right. And it's, I think most of them start by really aligning to the user. And that's where CS comes from, and really aligning to that user experience and empowering that user, and it's empowering that user not only to be successful with the product, but to tell their story of how they're successful with the product, giving them a platform to tell their story, and that could be through things like user groups, that could be through things like uh, customer evidence programs, that could be through conferences, and essentially getting your unsung heroes to be become heroes, right? So I mean, you look at we have some fun at SmartSheet around our partnership with mclaren f1 racing but the people that we're putting on our customer evidence are not daniel ricardo and Lando morris the drivers although they're great and they say <laughs> nice things about us and it's really fun for me at 64 to stand next to those guys and take a selfie and see how <laughs> modest they, they are but it the, the people that are that we're making our testimonials about in terms of our partnership with mclaren racing is, is the off-track heroes right and so actually branding the off-track heroes around that. And it's the people that are using Smartsheet to change the way they run the business at McLaren. When I was back at VMware, it was very much about the people in the data center, right? And and how the work they were doing by turning hardware into software through virtualization software from VMware. It was always sort of tongue-in-cheek. It was saving all this money by taking a big room of computers and making it a small room of computers because of the power of virtualization but it was saving marriages. It was saving marriages because we were making hardware less prone to failure, making it more fault-tolerant by taking things that used to be able to be broken in one place and instead make them mobile through software so you could move it to someplace that wasn't broken, very commonplace now in the cloud world, but not 15 years ago in the world of virtualization. And so putting in that context that, you know, as a VMware administrator, uh, we were saving marriages by helping people not have to get up in the middle of the night and manage an outage or go to the data center. Right, and so that you do um, want to start telling stories that both have that heart and mind that is really making a hero out of the person who's solving the problem and or feeling the pain of the problem, not just the executive who owns the big financial outcome. Right, and people will lean into that sort of that sort of invitation, which is to help the little guy do the right thing to serve the customer, improve the business, help their peers, etc. So we're trying to drive your customers to adopt your technology. Make them personal stories, right? Make them personal stories about the the little guy with the big problem who's trying to do the right thing and how you're helping that happen.
0: Love it. When I moved from Chicago to California for this, I guess really my my first kind of tech startup kind of thing, although they're already public at the time, I look back and one of the things we had early on was this program called Raving Fans. And Michael, that's kind of the whole thing behind. It was from our support and services side of the house. And it was like, hey, we're trying to create raving fans for our technology. People that are going to pound the table and you can't get there if you can't connect on some level of personal value for them. You can't just being a better feature. It's sometimes I kind of joke around like we're most loyal to the products or brands, not because they got everything right, but how they reacted when they didn't. So we can kind of go from there. All right. Is there... What's the number one thing you think most people get wrong, maybe, in trying to do something like this and develop that customer-focused
2: environment? Yeah. So I think that if you're trying to make a shift in how you show up with customers and really be customer-first and customer-focused, that the biggest mistake I see people make is underestimating their appetite for that change versus their absorption rate. So this idea that I'm going to do a wholesale change everywhere, right? And so it's in terms of Every part of the post sales journey, every customer, every market, every version of our product. So a mile wide and and an inch deep. Or on the flip side, starting with focus, but starting with focus in such a way that the solution will never be able to scale. Right. Meaning that it's, it's a great solution for the 1% of customers that spend, that create 30% of our revenue. But like, what about the, than other 99% of our customers that we couldn't afford to or logistically ever support putting that amount of care and wrap it around that account. And so you got to sort of find the Goldilocks zone in the middle. Okay. It's a wide enough percentage of our customers that will make a material sustaining impact, not only to revenue, but to sort of customer sentiment, right? Because it's not just the customers that spend the most with you that create the brand impact. It's the loudest voices, which are Aren't always aligned. Often they're they're inversely aligned. Your biggest customers are pretty quiet, and your smallest customers are making all kinds of noise in the market. So you gotta, in terms of the reviews online and the feedback on forums and so forth, right? So you gotta find that Goldilocks zone in the middle where you're gonna touch a, a large enough percentage of the customers that it actually shifts brand perception and customer perception. But you do also have to pick a high ground, like a, a portion of your product, your market or your critical moments in the post-sales experience, that that's going to be the thing we're great at, right? And so maybe our, make, to make it real, maybe we have too many manual processes in executing our renewal, but we're going to make sure that customer onboarding is amazing, right? And it's like, we'd love to fix both right now, but we've got to be honest, customer onboarding is going to be the thing we're amazing at. And we're going to be amazing at it for everybody who spends more than 30000 a year with us, but not everybody, right? Why 30000 a year versus 100000 a year versus 3000 Well, that should be data-driven. That should be, I should grab customers in all spend buckets and give them the same amount of care in onboarding and see which ones at renewal time have I actually put them on a different trajectory. And so that was, you know, that's a real example from uh, one of these firms that I looked at where we, we realized we could raise the bar and focus on onboarding above a certain threshold that was higher than we thought. We didn't have a downside down market because the expectations weren't that high with the small customers on how they were onboarded. And we could double down and really get the most value in the places where onboarding made a material.
0: Yeah. You know, another area that, again, I'm just thinking about this and it'll be my last point is I see organizations wanting to put this focus on the customer in. Business outcomes, but they forget that, hey, you can't just have a tiny little team doing this. This takes resources. So, if you know, I'm talking to someone in customer success calls, I'm all in. I have 600 accounts to worry about. There's no way I'm going to have enough time to give them that level of service. And that's, you know, kind of just kind of thinking through the scale of these things and the effort that it takes beyond folks. This is something that I kind of see. In a, until they either, okay, we're going to have a different level of service for a set of customers, that's all we can deliver. Or we're going to grow enough to provide that level of service for everyone is something they need to kind of consider. All right, Michael, I can, this thing can go on forever because I kind of love the topic, but I'm going to change direction on you a little bit. We asked our guests two main or standard questions at the end of each of our episodes. The first one's this: As a executive, a business leader in an organization, people are trying to prospect into you. There's sales professionals trying to get to you. Can you help our audience understand? What gets your attention? What's something that someone that doesn't know you, doesn't have a connection into your network for that warm connection, how do they build credibility
2: and get your attention? Yeah. So, two thoughts. Depends. The first one is if you're if I'm already a customer versus if I'm a prospect. So, if I'm already a customer, the way you get my attention is with hard love, tough love. Tell me what my team needs to be doing better versus just sharing all the great news of how wonderful my team is, right? And I use this myself in in driving renewals conversations with customers, right? Like we all love and appreciate getting feedback that our teams are doing a good job. And we're happy to hear that. But we also, we're we're totally focused on how can we help them do even better? And so if you as a vendor, I'm already spending money with you. I've already got your solution in my environment. I assume you know more about how customers succeed with you than I do. And I assume there's probably someone out there who's doing it better than I'm doing it. So share that insight in a constructive and thoughtful way that suggests your team's doing this well, but if they were to pivot in this way, they could do even better, right? And so I don't get enough of that sort of tough love and to push me to help my teams do things even better. And then the other, obviously, as a, as a prospect, it starts with knowing my business. I get a lot of solicitations that are based upon the fact that they've Googled me. Right, I got someone who sent me a video of a pitch where they're playing the drums because they found out I was a drummer. And yeah, I watched the video, but I didn't take the meeting or call them back. <laughs> <Right>? like, <laughs> where, <laughs> right? so, kudos, they got yes, they got two minutes of my time because I watched the video, but I didn't take the meeting. Right? So, but the people who reach out and they clearly understand what we're saying as a publicly traded company are our hurdles. And they're bringing it back to what I control and what is happening in my world. That preparation is meaningful and more likely to, to accept the cold call.
1: Show me you know me. And not just me, but my company. Yeah, my business, my challenges. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. we hear that a lot. Excellent, Michael. Last question. We call this our acceleration insight. What might be one thing you could share with our listeners, one piece of advice that you believe will really help them to achieve or exceed their goals and targets this year?
2: Yeah, I think always that heart and mind work together on making decisions, right? And so you very quickly, consciously or subconsciously decide how much you trust and value a relationship and or a a potential procurement partner. But, and then you justify it, right? You justify it based upon the the ROI and and the financial reasonable stuff. It's even more true in this environment, right? Where there's less dollars to go around, less tolerance for risk, more expectation that if we take a chance, it needs to be proven that it's paying off successfully very quickly. And so I would just, back to your earlier comment, Carlos, If I, I have 600 accounts. I'd just be really laser focused on okay, but if nothing changed, there's the 200 that are going to do well enough to get you to your number. Where's the 10 to 20 that if something did change would be major needle movers? And just try to get really tight on that 10 to 20 over these last six months of the year that you're anchored in financial value, that you have a unique and differentiated value statement. That value is not just dollars and cents, but it's dollars and cents in the context of a business outcome. That's core to the company's strategy. So you're not just doing good work, you're doing important work in that environment. And then you're going to rise to the top of the pack when when they like to say yes to five solutions and projects and great ideas, but they're only saying yes to two. They're not saying no to the others, they're giving them the slow no, which is uh, (laughs) we're going to do this as soon as times get better and you don't want to be getting the slow no.
1: Perfect. Michael, if a listener is interested in talking more about the topics we touched on today, what is the best way for them to get in contact with you?
2: Yeah, obviously, I'd love to, to help you out with any of this from a Smartsheet perspective. You could go out to smartsheet.com and you're in the, the project program process or uh, operation space. And then more on the customer outcomes and customer roles that we talked about today of services success support. My LinkedIn is the best place to find me. So Michael Hubbard info, one word, Michael Hubbard info look forward to hearing from you guys.
1: Amazing, Michael. We can't thank you enough for your time today. It's been really great having you on the show.
2: Thanks so much, Lisa. Thanks, Carlos. Let's have a great second half of the year here.
1: (laughs) Sounds good. (laughs) All right, everyone, that does it for this episode. Please check us out at www.b2brevexec.com. Share your episode, this episode, with your family, friends, dogs, kids, co-workers. And if you like what you hear, please do us a favor and throw us a five-star review on iTunes. Until next time, myself, Carlos Noche, and the whole team here at the B2B Revenue Executive Experience wish you nothing but the greatest success.
0: You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience.